The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. God says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us in John 1. Father, we thank you that um, you are a great God who loves us and takes care of us. You give us so many things, not the least of which is your word. Every time that we read your word, it's it's a gift. You are speaking, and we should be grateful. And so we don't want to treat it academically or treat it just like it's um, a matter to be understood. We we want just to listen to you. So whatever you say today, we want to hear and we want to obey. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So for the last two weeks, we've been studying John chapter 1, and particularly looking at the advent according to John, how John presents Jesus coming into the world. And uh, we've seen that John's aim in his whole book is to write some things so that people will know what Jesus did, according to John 20, 31, and that by believing in him, they might, ha- they might have life through his name or in his name. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And we saw that John, remarkably different than Matthew, Mark, or Luke, starts his gospel philosophically. He starts it theologically with this idea of the Word. The Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and it was God. And then last week, we looked at the beautiful reality of regeneration remember this little bullet god rescues rebels through regeneration we saw the power of the new birth how god rescues us by literally spiritually birthing us anew these are just incredibly amazing concepts both this philosophical reality of jesus being the word and this spiritual reality of what it means for us to have been born again but if you were to just take those two ideas you might think that Christianity is primarily and only um, philosophical and spiritual. And yet what John does is he actually adds something here in our text this morning. He adds physical. So it's not just that what Jesus does is really important. John 1, 14 to 18 identifies how he does it and why that is important. In other words, it's not just what Jesus did that is overwhelmingly beautiful. It is also how he did it. You see, we love Jesus because of his death, burial, and resurrection. But according to this text, we see something else that we should love. Namely, we love him because how he became flesh. He became human. And we're going to see from the the Gospel of John today the, the beautiful power of what that means. So there's six different aspects this morning regarding the incarnation and specifically how Jesus became flesh that I want to highlight for us and then draw some really important conclusions that I hope will help you literally as you're pulling up to your family parties coming up in the next couple of weeks. So here's the first one. The first idea is this, that Jesus became flesh in verse 14. 
It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what we see here, first and foremost, is that Jesus became flesh. He became human. Up until this point, in John chapter 1, the focal point has been on the non-tangible, the, the philosophical, the spiritual. We heard metaphors like light, and we heard metaphors like um, life. And the closest that we came to something tangible was the idea of the new birth, where John uses this analogy of being born. If that was all you heard, you might think that The Christian life was merely something that was spiritual. And that was actually a a prominent view that um, um, was promulgated during John's day. That real spirituality existed in the soul and not in the body. There was a Gnosticism that was prevalent within the culture at the time. This Gnosticism believed that the body was bad and the soul was good. That there was this sense that whatever you did with the body didn't really matter because it was immaterial, it wasn't significant. What really mattered is what you did with the soul, with the heart. And and that also led to a pseudo-Christian teaching called docetism that viewed Jesus as less than fully human. He was maybe the emblem of humanity or he had the appearance of humanity or the illusion of humanity, but the reality was he wasn't fully human. What's remarkable is that John, in both John 1 and in 1 John 1 and 1 John 4, both his gospel and his letter, John gets after this idea of Jesus not being fully human. Instead, he leads his gospel and he even leads his letter with this idea. John, in John chapter, 1 John chapter 4, even identifies that there's a spirit of the age that if it denies that Jesus has come in the flesh, you can know that spirit is not from God. Look at 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2. Here's what the text says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So what John is telling us here, both in 1 John and John chapter 1, is that this idea of Jesus coming in the flesh is incredibly important. It's incredibly significant. In fact, even in 1 John chapter 1, he leads his letter with that. Just listen, or take your Bible and look over to 1 John chapter 1, and you'll see how this plays out. John wants you to hear the the physical reality of um, Jesus as being in the flesh. John, verse John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and here he comes. Notice the physical realities. Which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's talking about Jesus. And he's addressing the fact that there were some people in his day that didn't believe that Jesus came in the flesh. Now why is that Why would that be so difficult? Well, because remember this idea of Jesus being the Word. The Word was this sort of philosophical and spiritual principle that was out there in the universe, like like wisdom in the book of Proverbs, or like some sort of of idea that's out in 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 the cosmos. 
And, and John uses this word, word, to symbolize that. And he says that this idea that holds the universe together, this idea that, that encompasses everything that is real in the world, this idea becomes flesh. That just seems so crazy. Not just that it, it embodies somebody, but it becomes flesh. That Jesus is the principal defining reality of the universe. I was trying to think of, in philosophical or maybe pop culture categories, how to help you understand this idea of the word from a cultural framework. And so I really couldn't find any great examples philosophically, but I could find one in terms of uh, pop culture. And so I'm going to give you an example from the the great pop culture philosopher named Yoda. And, and, And he has some incredible things that he says. Um, here's, here's a couple. And this doesn't relate to our point, but they're interesting, I think, and kind of um, comical. Here's what he says, and I won't do a Yoda voice for you. So he says, try not, do or do not, there is no try. That's Yoda, philosophy called Yoda. Here's another one. When you look at the dark side, careful you must be, for dark side looks back. Okay. Now, as it relates to the force, here's what Yoda says. For my ally in the force... And powerful ally it is. Life creates it, makes it grow. Its energy surrounds us and binds us. Luminous beings are we, not of this crude matter, he points to the earth. You must feel the force around you, here, between you, me, the tree, the rock, everywhere. Yes, feel the force. So from a pop culture standpoint, um, Yoda is expressing this idea of the force. And now the reality is what we have in John 1 is so radically different than that because this idea of the force in, in um, Yoda's mind really comes from George Lucas and some kind of Buddhist thing where it's empty and, and shallow and meaningless. And think of this, Jesus comes as the force of the universe and he becomes a man and he walks on the earth. So it's not just that the force or the word falls on somebody, but it actually becomes the embodiment of somebody. So that Christianity is not a belief in a force, it's a belief in a person. It's not a a relationship with some sort of idea like wisdom or control or some sort of um, philosophical idea. It's a relationship with an individual person. He becomes flesh. And what's more, it's not just that it comes upon him, but that he becomes a baby. So think of this, that Jesus, with all the limitations of humanity, embraces both the weakness, the humility, and the irony that is just magnified with him becoming an infant. It is a willful humiliation that creates a contrast between the concept of the Word and Jesus becoming flesh. The Word became flesh. It's unbelievable. And it's incredibly beautiful. Now here's the second thing, verse 14. It also tells us that he dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. Becoming flesh was only part of the beauty of what happened in the incarnation of Jesus. The the central fact here is not only that he became a human being, but that he literally dwelt among us. He came down. God came down. God was near. God was close by. He was present. Now that word dwelt in the text, verse 14, dwelt is a really important word and has significant meaning. New Testament scholars tell us that this word dwelt 
is connected in Greek to a Hebrew word that was related to the Old Testament concept of the tabernacle. So this idea of dwelt has a a, a track record, has its roots rooted in the idea of what it meant for the Old Testament saints to know that God tabernacled among them. So when you would read this as a person with a Jewish background, you could easily read it as the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Now this idea of God tabernacling among His people is really important because the presence of God in the Old Testament, and even in the New, but primarily in the Old Testament, the presence of God signified His compassion, His love, His acceptance of His people. When God was pleased with His people, He dwelt near with them. When He was upset with them, He removed His presence from them. Just think, for instance, of what happened in the Garden of Eden. God and Adam and Eve, they walk together, they talk together, the cool of the day. And then when Adam and Eve sin, what happens to them? They're driven out of the garden. Or think, for instance, of um, when the people are delivered from Egypt, a, a cloud or a pillar of fire leads them. God's presence is in front of them. Furthermore, the purpose of even the tabernacle itself, as the people traveled in the wilderness wanderings, was to provide a place, a central place, for God to dwell. And all of the nation pitched their, tent, their tents around the central reality of the tabernacle. And God comes down. And even the Old Testament prophets, when they referred to the Messiah, they called him Emmanuel. Which means what? God with us. So this idea is incredibly important. In fact, not only in the Old Testament, but also in the New. If you fast forward all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, you will find that the eternal existence that we have with Christ is pictured as God coming down and him dwelling with us look at rome revelation 21 3 it says and i heard a loud voice from the throne saying behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god so here's God who comes down, he dwells with his people, he is near, he is close. So to say that God dwelt among us means that once again, but in a whole new way, God has come down, he has loved us, he came to us. And so when you gather around um, this holiday season with family, with friends, when you give gifts, when you consider the meaning of this wonderful holiday, I just want to remind you that what we celebrate on during this season is that Jesus came down. He came to us. And what's more, He not only came to us, but friends, He became one of us. And He became flesh forever. I mean, it's just remarkable. It's beautiful. Here we have God who comes, He comes among us, He dwells among us. And then third, verse 14, the text tells us that His glory was on display. Look at verse, again, 14. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. As John reflects back on what he knows about Jesus, he... um it talks about the fact that we saw the glory. We saw the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And what you see here is a connection. A connection between the presence of God and the glory of God. The beauty of heaven is, is the fact that you get to see Him for all that He is. In fact, 1 John chapter 3 says, We know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. So when God comes near, there's a sense of His glory. And John says, He came and we saw Him. We saw the glory. 
The glory of God. In fact, this happens in the Old Testament. When God's presence fills the temple in Exodus 40, there's a cloud that comes. A cloud that that leads them, a cloud that fills the tabernacles. Same thing, First Kings chapter 8, when God comes and he, he, His presence, manifest presence, comes at the temple, a cloud fills the temple. And in Revelation, when the new Jerusalem is described as coming down, it's described in beautiful terms. It says it's coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. So there's something really special about the presence of God that is connected to the glory of God. And John says this, he became flesh, he dwelt among us, we have seen him, we've seen him as the glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father. Here he says the Son is a special position. Secondly, he is from the Father, he has a connection to divinity. And third, he is full of grace and truth. All that to say Jesus personally embodies, listen to this, he personally embodies what God is like. In effect, Jesus says, if you want to know what God is like, then you simply need to know what I'm like. Jesus, in other words, is a sufficient display of the glory of God for us to know what God is like. One time in in the book of John, John records that after Thomas said to Jesus, where are you going and how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And, And then... Philip chimes in, and he says, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And I really bet Philip wished he had never said that. <laughs> because what Jesus says next is this, verse 9. I mean, imagine if you're Philip, and you said that. Lord, just show us the Father, and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me? That's about the time when Philip's going, uh-oh, right? <laughs> and then he says... Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? By the way, rest of the text, no one asks any more questions, right? What is Jesus saying there? He's identifying the mistake that many people make, that Philip was making, and it's this, that they do not see Jesus as sufficient. They look in the Bible and they think, well, that's great, you can read about him in the Bible. But what I wish is that God would speak to me. He would audible voice or put it in the clouds or send me an email or a text message with a little smiley face. Something in order to tell me that he's real. And yet over and over the Bible tells us that even if the heavens were to speak or if some sort of um, communication like that would take place, you still wouldn't believe that Jesus is sufficient. Even though at times he's hard to fully understand there's times when, when Jesus displays what God is like and it's a bit offensive to us. It is hard and humbling. Many times the way Jesus presents himself, it doesn't fit with our preconceived ideas of what is successful or powerful or victorious. Meekness looks like weakness at times. And what Jesus does is he dismantles our preconceived ideas about what we need to know about God and our precocious ideas about what we would need in order to believe about God. And Jesus says, I am the full display of the glory of God. I'm all you need. I am sufficient. Absolutely. So, third, Jesus displayed the glory of the Father. Here's fourth, verses 15 and 16. 
we see that sinners receive grace upon grace. Now, verse 15 says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. It's a parenthetical comment, and John lists it here regarding John the Baptist to reaffirm Jesus' deity. He's been talking about his humanity, so he throws this in to link back to what he said in earlier verses about Jesus being before John the Baptist, even quoting him to affirm his deity. Verse 16 is where we derive our main point. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is so beautiful. It means because of the fullness of who and what Jesus is, we receive grace upon grace upon grace. It means that out of the full expression of all that Jesus is, he pours out lavish mercy and he keeps giving and giving and giving and giving. It means that to think of God's love, to think of the power of His grace, that it is an an inexhaustible resource. And so over this holiday, you, you are the recipient of grace upon grace upon grace. You've been the recipient already this morning. You woke, you came here, you're alive, you're hearing, you're listening, you're thinking, your heart is beating, you have, you have friends and family, you have the abilities that God has given you. And this is grace upon grace upon grace. This is something that we often think about and something that we often sing about. The, 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 the hymn writer Frederick Lehman tried to capture this in the hymn, The Love of God. And let me set the framework of what he's going to say. He's going to say that if the ocean were filled with ink, and if the sky was a big piece of paper, and if every tree was a pen and every person a scribe, then if you worked all together to write about the love of God, you'd never be able to capture the essence of the beauty of God's grace, even though the ocean was filled with ink, even though the sky was a pad of paper, even though every person was a scribe and every tree was a pen. This is how big God's grace and his love is. This is the song that we sing. He says, could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. And then he goes on, here's what he says. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Friends, what you celebrate, what we celebrate during this time of year is the reality of God's overflow of his grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That means that even if you're approaching this holiday season with a pretty difficult situation going on, you just need to know that God has tailor-made grace for every day that you face. There's never a day that you lack grace. God has an inexhaustible amount of grace. And so you can have confidence today that no matter what has happened to you in 2011, nor what's going to happen to you in 2012, God has got you and there's enough grace. The ocean is filled with His grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. Fifth, The text tells us in verse 17 that Jesus ushers in a new day. It says, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What John does here is sets up a contrast from the old to the new. Between Moses and Jesus, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the law and the gospel. 
Moses, of course, was the highly esteemed man of God who led Israel out of Egypt. He and Elijah are viewed as the two main prophets of the Old Testament, which is why they show up during the transfiguration. Moses was special in that he was viewed as having delivered or mediated the law of God. This, This means, this law by which the people understood what God is like. And yet John sets this up that the law came through Moses, and yet the contrast is that of Jesus. What's the contrast? Well, the contrast is that the law could only bring judgment. The law was useful, as I said a couple weeks ago in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It was useful in that it was wonderfully hopeless. The law is good in that it it, it brings truth to light. It, It shows us who we are. It tells us what we're like. It reveals sin. And in some cases, it even makes sin come alive at all new levels. The law exposes the sinfulness of mankind and shows us the holiness of God. That's why the law is good in that respect. But notice what John says. The law comes through Moses. So the law tells us truth, 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 truth. And we need that. But notice what happens with Jesus. The law comes through Moses, but grace and truth come through Jesus. Don't you love that? The reason why you should love that is Jesus doesn't just overflow with love towards you. He also tells us the truth about who we are. Friends, this is the essence of love. Love is not simply denying the reality of who people are. Love is loving them in spite of who they are. A marriage is a great marriage if people understand that you have sinful people who are living on the same roof. You know, Christians don't live in perfect homes. The difference is, is we're sinners and we know what to do about our sin. That's the difference. And Jesus is full of grace and truth. He, he, he shows us who we are and then he chooses to love us while fully knowing who we are. This is the essence of love. And I would argue this is what Christ, by definition, gives the world. He gives the world the real definition of what love is. To be loved even though you are fully known. I mean, isn't that what all of you really want? Isn't that what I want? To be loved even though I'm fully known? Last year, around this time, I was mentoring about five guys, young guys, who were young married men and talking, trying to help them to be intentional husbands. And one of the assignments I gave them was to take a sheet of paper that I had printed out, and on the sheet of paper were three questions that they were to give to a close friend and also to their spouse or someone else who they were close to, three different people. And the questions on the sheet of paper were these. First, what am I really good at? Secondly, what am I really bad at? And third, what's one thing or two things that I need to know that people are afraid to tell me? Want to join my class? <laughs> and so I gave this, this sheet to them and said, now go. And, and you should have seen the look on their face when they saw that. Like, oh, man. One guy decided that while his mother-in-law and his wife were in the same room, he was going to give this to both of them. And so he, got, he told us a story how he, he got the form out and he, and he handed it to them. He looked them in the eye and then he ran outside. Because <laughs> he was so afraid of what they were going to say. And so they spent 20, 30 minutes writing out what he was good at, what he was bad at. They folded up, put it in the envelope. He came back in. He was like, thanks. And he went upstairs to his bedroom and sat on the edge of the bed and with a little bit of fear opened up that envelope. And as he told the story, he said he just began to get emotional as he looked on the sheet, not because of what was on there and how hard it was, but because of the fact that his wife and mother-in-law knew him. And they knew him really well. And they told him honest things. 
And he came back downstairs and he said, thanks. And they hugged him and told him they loved him. And he said, you know what? It just was unbelievable. Here are two people who know me from the inside out and they still love me. Folks, that's the essence of what the gospel does. It's the essence of what Jesus does. He knows you. I mean, he knows you warts and all. And yet he's full of grace and truth. Just grace would be to be delusional. Just truth is to be hurtful. And here's Jesus who is grace and truth. I would tell you, I think that Christianity is the only religion in the world, if you're trying to figure out the difference between Christianity and other religions, it's the only one that offers that. Grace and truth and then embodied in a person. It's just remarkable. It's beautiful. Here's the sixth thing. And and this is final, that Jesus revealed the invisible God, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So John's introduction of Jesus now comes to its climax and its conclusion. This is what John has been driving towards from John chapter 1 and verse 1. Jesus, who was fully God, and Jesus, who was fully man, has now made the invisible God visible. It's just remarkable. He's the Word, the Light, the Life, the God-Man, and Jesus now makes God known. He's bridged the gap between a holy God and sinful mankind. He reaffirms the deity of Jesus. He says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side. So, although some people had seen God in partial partial forms, like the backside of God, like Moses, Jesus is referring here, or John rather, is referring here to the fact that no one has seen the full display of the beauty of God. No one has seen that, apart from seeing it embodied in the person of Jesus. And then he affirms the deity of Jesus. He says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he's referring again to Jesus, he has made him known. The point of all of this is that Jesus has made God clear. He's made him evident. In effect, to see Jesus is to see the Father. So if you're here today and you're like, what in the world is God like? What's he like? What's he about? The answer Just look at Jesus. That's what God has revealed to us on this earth in this particular point in time in terms of what we need to know about who and what he is. In other words, Jesus is completely sufficient. Jesus has given a full account of what God is like to us. In Jesus, we have the full disclosure of what we need to know about God. And in Jesus, we are able to fully know and to be fully loved by God. It's just remarkable. So he not only reveals what God is like, he not only enters our world and embodies this plan of reconciliation, but then through both his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection... Through his teaching, he reveals what God is like. He reveals what God is like. So all of this that John gives us was meant to work and meant to live. Something that really you should be able to take home with you and work out. So what does this mean? What are the implications of the incarnation? Let me give you four. The first is this. Friends, Jesus died in your place. 
We start with what it means to actually become a follower of Jesus because there's some of you who are here today and the fact of the matter is you, you are not a follower of Jesus, admittedly, or, or just by virtue of just not really thinking this through passively. You just you haven't come to terms with the fact that Jesus died in your place. The incarnation means that Jesus came and he bore the wrath of a sinful God that you deserved. He took your place, that, that your sin deserves punishment, and Jesus becomes the substitution whereby God can take his death and apply it to you. He takes your sin and gives it to him. He takes his righteousness and grants it to you. And this divine exchange is what the Bible calls being born again. God forgives you and cleanses you and makes you a new creation. And the fact of the matter is is you can't understand life or relationships or marriage or money. You can't accept, understand intimacy. You can't understand what it means to really love someone unless you understand what the gospel is. Because the gospel informs all of these things. It's the starting point for you to realize, I need help. I can't manage my life on my own. I can't self-atone. I need someone else to take over. I need someone else to be my atonement and sacrifice. And that's where it all begins. So the implication of Jesus becoming flesh means that he died in your place. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because it's the beginning of his life that leads to his death. Here's the second thing. This is really important. Because Jesus became a man, it means that he really, really understands. He took upon the weaknesses, the limitations of being human. He entered our world, and he knows what it's like to live in a broken, fallen world. Hear me. Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be in pain. He knows what it's like to be disappointed. He knows what it's like to be sad. He knows what it's like to be discouraged. And he even knows what it's like to be afraid. This is really important because some of you during this time of year, you you feel pain at a whole new level. You're celebrating a Christmas and there should be somebody sitting next to you on the couch while your kids open presents and they're not here this year. And you're looking at Christmas going, "I, I I don't even want this. Or maybe you, like me, have a little ornament in a box that you pull out every year. It's got a little picture of a child that's not around the tree, and you hang that up. And every year you're just like, yeah, this is hard. Doesn't matter how many years it is, it's still hard. Or maybe you're, you're, you're going into Christmas this year, it's the first year you're divorced. Or maybe this is the tenth year that you're without a child. Or maybe this is the first year that your mom and dad are split up and you just can't believe that this is your life. What do you do? The book of Hebrews says you come to Jesus. Because more than the change of circumstances, more than a Christmas like you've always dreamed, more like a holiday than you've always wanted, the Bible tells you there's another undergirding support in all of this. It is Jesus who became a man so that he could say, I get it. I know what it's like to live in your broken world. Oh yeah, he may not know what infertility is like. He may not know what it's like to deal with your Uncle Bill. He may not know what it's, what it's like to have split up parents. He isn't, not that specific, but Jesus lived in a fallen world so that when you pull up into the driveway of your parents and you look at that house and you go, I don't know how in the world we're going to go in there today, you can call out to him and say, Jesus, I need you to be here right now. And I'm telling you, he will show up. 
And in your pain, listen to me, and in the pain of that moment, intersecting with the beautiful prayer that you offer to Jesus, your faith will come alive. And you will say, oh, I hate this pain, but I'm thankful for what it teaches me about God. Because Jesus becomes real. You get in the car, you'll drive home, and you'll be like, that was really hard, but Jesus was there. He understands. Here's the third thing. The Bible tells us that if Jesus is sufficient, then you have everything you need to be godly. And this is really hopeful. Because you can't manage what your mom or dad are going to say. You can't fix their, their marriage relationship. You can't fix biological issues going on inside of your body. You can't fix your marital status. You can't fix what's going on in terms of your extended family. You can't fix all of that. But here's what you can do. You can choose to be Christ-like. You have everything you need to be godly. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Peter 1.3. It says, His divine power has granted us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. In other words, there may be all sorts of bad circumstances around you, but you have everything you need to be godly and Christ-like, and nobody can choose to make you non-Christ-like. Listen to me, nobody makes you sin, you choose it. And nobody can choose for you to be godly. You choose it. And this may be the best or maybe the worst holiday season of your entire life, but you can still decide you're going to be godly. And there is wonderful, beautiful hope in that. And then finally, the Bible tells us that following Jesus is not only the what, but it also involves the how. As I was meditating on this and just thinking, why would you become a man? Why? And all this stuff about your life, it just, it just struck me that Jesus not only worked out our redemption, he entered into it. I mean, check that out. He not only worked it out, but he entered into it. In other words, the what that Jesus does is remarkable, but friends, so is the how. It's not just remarkable that he redeemed us. That's remarkable in and of itself. But the way that he does it, it's just unbelievable. He enters our world. He comes to the planet earth he becomes flesh it's not only that what he does in terms of redemption but how he does it and i was just reminded that the bible calls us over and over not just to do right things but to do them the right way husbands we're called to love our wives as christ loved the church wives are called to submit to their husbands as unto the lord children to obey their parents as unto the lord servants to obey their masters as unto the lord singles are to use their singleness for the glory of god it's not only what but it's the how And the older I get, the more I realize that how is, frankly, it's equally important as the what. It's not just what I say to my kids, it's how I say it. It's not just what I do, it's how I do it. The older I get, the more I realize this. In fact, this year, last year, um, well, this year rather, was um, that celebration of that mark in your life. And Sarah and I both had the same event this last year where we made it sort of over the line where you begin to slide towards death. So we were, we, we, we made it over that, that, that hump. And since we're in the process of dying, we decided to celebrate it for four days. And, um, so we went away together and just celebrated this march towards death. And, um, as a part of this death celebration, I, I gave her a gift to, to mark this death slide that we're in. And, um, the gift was a, a series of rings, stackable rings that were, um, there were, I think there's six of them, five of them, excuse me. Um, there was um, one from me, signifying our marriage, one from our twins, um, 
one from Jeremiah, one from Sylvia, and one from Savannah. And so I could have given them to her all at once, but I've learned something over the years. I decided that the how was important as the what. And so every day that we were away, I gave her one ring, and with that ring came a card that identified the meaning of it. So every morning she woke up, and there was a little box and a little ring and a card. The next morning, a box and a ring and a card. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Yeah. How come there's more women clapping than men? (laughs) Some of you men are like, oh, no. Now I got the gift. I don't get the how. What do I do? Good luck with that. So, uh, (laughs) and and I'll tell you, the gift was significant, but the how was just as significant. And friends, I got to tell you that that how thing not only relates to marriage and parenting, the, the source of that comes right out of the gospel. Because it's not only what Jesus did, it's how he did it. The call to follow him is not just to live in a way that is truthful and biblical. But it's also a call to do all of that while doing that in a way that fits with who Jesus is. So to be a follower of his means that you believe the right things, but you also live the right way. That you say the right words, but you say them in the right way. And if you want an amazing example of how you do that, look no further than John 1.14. Here's the how. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's just unbelievable. So Lord Jesus, help us to live out the how in the way in which we live during this holiday season. I pray that you would help us to see that the incarnation of your Son gives us hope that when we don't know what to do and when we feel like the bottom has dropped out or when our life is really disappointing or we wonder, how how much more of this can I take? That, That you are a brother who we can come to. You are a high priest who we can pray to. And thank you that tonight we're going to lean into those things as we pray, but even this morning we can pray into those things. Thank you that you can free us from fear and doubt. We can live godly, Christ-exalting lives. And so for my brothers and sisters who will enter into hard and difficult circumstances in the next week and a half, I pray that you would give them not only what to say, but how to say it, not only what to do, but how to do it so they can platform this beautiful reality of the word that became flesh. Oh, Jesus, we love you. So grateful for you. And it's your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Hey, if you've got something going on in your world, these folks are here to pray for you today, all right? They're here to love on you. If you need something, they're here to talk or pray with you, all right? God bless you, College Park. I love you. Thanks for coming.